Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine are doing this OITE review where we try to go over the high-yield orthopedic topics for the orthopedic in-training exam as well as the board exams, and you're tuned into our foot and angle. So, I mean, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. And again, if you all want some notes to go along with what we're talking about, Click the link in the description. We have our podcast companion ebook, at least that is now available on foot and ankle, as well as every other topic that we have talked to prior to this. So let's go ahead and get into today. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All right, everybody, welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are back talking some um, some foot, ankle, you know, trauma type stuff. Uh, Dr. Woolwine, uh, how's it going? You doing okay? Yeah, doing well. Um, getting ready to finish up my fellowship here. Got six more weeks and then uh, moving back across the country for the 800th time, it seems like so far. <laughs> so, so, yeah, everything everything looks good. Man, it's crazy how time flies. I feel like it's almost been, I, I got to go and look back at the calendar to when we actually started doing this. Uh, I know it was sometime later last year, but I feel like it's it's getting close to almost a year. Yeah, I think so too. Because, yeah, I remember we were going through this stuff as I was preparing for my ABOS part one. So that was, yeah. I mean, last year. So, I mean, we're in June of 22 and so yeah it, it probably was around a, a year ago when when we started this off I mean <laughs> honestly I, I think we we had a, we had grand ambitions to get through all of <laughs> orthopedics in a several month period and then we realized that uh it just simply wasn't possible so uh but we're we're getting through it we'll, we'll get there Oh, man, I remember at first, like, yeah, man, we'll get it done by, like, August, you know, <laughs> this is <Yeah>. no way. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> but we're we're getting through. We've we've covered definitely over half of orthopedics. And oh, yeah. so, yeah, so we're we're kicking ass. I, I'm not going to take anything away from us. Yeah, yeah, we've been going through a lot. Um, and I guess we can keep the train on going here. Uh, we'll some, I think we just finished up some foot stuff. We're finishing and starting some more foot stuff. So uh, now we're on, it looks, seems like calc fractures. Um, so I guess for, you know, we have a lot of, you know, interns that are listening to this and uh, junior residents. And I guess this question is more, more for them, but what is a question or questions that, you know, you kind of want to ask when evaluating patients with calcaneus fractures? So the, the primary thing that when you're first evaluating somebody who usually calcaneus fractures, as we all know, they are high energy injuries, right? So 
they're they're going to be very uh, strong axial forces based on the hind foot, whether that's a fall from height or a car crash where the heel hits against the uh, the the footboard of the car or whatever. And the the biggest thing you really want to find out that um, that you can potentially control for uh, in the in the immediate perioperative period is one: are they a smoker? And two, are they a diabetic? Because if they're a smoker, uh, although they're probably currently smoking, you can at least get them to stop now and continue that for three months post-op as that's been shown to improve outcomes uh, regardless of the type of surgery. So whether that's calc fractures or hip and knee replacements or spine surgery, if you can can, can get them to quit smoking in that uh, perioperative period, then they have better outcomes and then diabetes. So if their A1C is above eight and they are uh, not really watching their diet, having an endocrinologist or hospital medicine consult on them and get them started on either a PO medication like metformin or insulin while in the hospital to get that blood sugar under control is going to really improve their uh, outcomes in the perioperative period. So again, smoking and diabetics have it increased complications in, in the cohort of calcaneus fractures. And so I, I kind of went over this a, a little bit, but what is the typical mechanism of injury for uh, intraarticular calcaneus fractures? Yeah, you did. And I just wanted just to reiterate, and I know it's gotten to the point where I will like, you know, if I have a patient that has a calc fracture, I know we should probably operate on. And I know they're a smoker. I always tell them the worst case scenario to try to get them to stop smoking. I'll say, hey, you know, you continue smoking, and you can have wound problems and you may need multiple, multiple, you know, trips to the OR and, you know, you could end up with an amputation. So, you know, I just need you at least for this, this period of time um, while the wound is healing, while your fractures are healing, lay off the cigarettes if you can, you know, and I'm, I always say, I'm not, tell, I'm not telling you to go back to it afterwards, but if you can lay off the cigarettes for X amount of time, you know, you can try to avoid all these horrific complications that can happen because, you know, these are, these are high, you know, high wound or high, or high uh, complication areas. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, the uh, mechanism of injury, uh, of these calcaneus fractures, just like you're saying is like an, an axial load. Uh, and if you go back and you look in, they talk about kind of about two different fracture lines. So you first have an axial load, uh, which kind of gives you, which leads this oblique shearing force to the calcaneus. And then you get your primary fracture line, and you have two primary fragments from that primary fracture line. Okay, so again, the basic thing, axial load, you get a little, a sh an oblique shearing force to the calcaneus, and you get your primary fracture line, and then two primary fragments. And those primary fragments are the superior medial and the superior lateral fragment. And the superior medial fragment is uh, what includes the sustentaculum, or is also known as a constant fragment. Now, there are some papers that say that fragment may, may not be so constant, but um, for all purposes, we'll say that the superior medial fragment is, is what includes the sustentaculum and includes that constant fragment and the FHL runs right underneath it. And they tend to ask some test questions about that. And you also have a superior lateral fragment, which is the articular component through the posterior facet through the posterior lateral tuberosity. So again, summary, you have an axial load, at least an oblique sharing force to the calc and you have your primary fracture line and you have your two primary fragments, your superior medial and your superior lateral fragment. Um, 
so that is a primary fracture line and then those two primary fragments that are seen with calc fractures and what is the importance of the secondary fracture line when we're talking about you know these calcaneus fractures yeah so a secondary fracture line um will kind of determine whether the force goes through the uh joint surface or whether the force goes posterior uh, outside of a kind of an extra articular fracture line. So if uh, a secondary fracture line extends through the uh, joint surface, then you're going to see more of a joint depression. But if it extends posteriorly or extra articular, you're going to see more of a tongue type uh, sort of fracture where the Achilles will pull on the uh, fragment and kind of pull that superior. Uh, and for those who really haven't seen a tongue tie fracture, it's it, it's pretty classic uh, x-ray. If you just Google it right now, as you're kind of listening to this, when you see a tongue tie fracture, you'll see the superior portion of the extraarticular calcaneus um, extend superior. And um, those, with those kind of extra articular sort of fractures, um, you see that more in kind of the osteopenic osteoporotic bone. It won't be necessarily in the younger patients, it, although it, it can definitely happen. Um, but the joint depression is seen uh, more in the kind of uh, superolateral fragment as this is really where the that um, subtalar joint is uh, focused. Um, and then the, the uh, tongue type is where that posterior facet is attached more to the tuberosity posteriorly rather than the uh, sustentaculum, uh, which is the joint depression. So uh, you, you, you briefly went, uh, you kind of talked about this and it's questionable, but something that I always would evaluate when seeing a calcaneus fracture in the emergency room uh, is passive motion of the first digit and uh, what structure lies underneath the constant fragment and can cause irritation uh, with passive motion of the first digit in an acute calcaneus fracture. Yeah, so that's going to be the FHL tendon or the flexor hallucis longus tendon. Um, so you got to know that that lies underneath that constant, you know, again, relatively up for debate, but that constant or that sustentacular fragment. And this can be damaged with like screw placement if the screw is a little bit too medial um, again. And so they'll like test it like they have some issue with bending their toe after having a cow fracture fix. And you need to know like, oh, it's FHL tendon that they are trying to talk to you about. Um, and that being said, what are some, what are some x-ray markers that can be used when evaluating patients with calcaneus fractures? Cause you know, we're looking at x-rays. We, you know, we have our overall idea of what, you know, joint depression fracture or ton type fracture is and these fragments, but what are some x-ray markers that we can use when evaluating patients with uh, these calc fracture? So some of these angles, I mean, this is a lot more. I mean, I, yes, they are 100% useful when you are reconstructing the calcaneus uh, in the uh, OR, 
although in the OR, it's really tough to actually truly measure these angles. But the, uh, the first one you're going to focus on is Bowler's angle, uh, which is usually around 20 to 40 degrees. And then the other one is the angle of Gasson. Uh, which is usually around 130 to 145 degrees. So a bowler's angle, um, if it is more flat, so if it is less than 20 degrees, and basically the bowler's angle is looking at how much of an apex there is at the superior posterior portion of the posterior facet of the calcaneus. If that is a flat angle, then you're, you're looking at posterior facet collapse. So you're looking at a very flat calcaneus on the lateral view. Both of, both of these angles are based on the lateral view. And then the uh, angle of Gisson, which is usually 130 to 145 degrees. If you have an increased angle, meaning an angle that is greater than 145 or more flat, then you're going to have posterior facet collapse as well. So both of these are really looking at posterior facet collapse. And um, you might be wondering like, oh, well, why do we have two angles looking at posterior facet uh, collapse? And that is really what is the most important part of reconstructing the calcaneus is making sure that you don't reconstruct a flat calcaneus. You have to actually recreate the um, kind of native, uh, it, it's tough to really explain over a podcast, but it's really the native kind of flexion of the calcaneus so that it can help recreate the hind foot and that you can have an arch of the foot uh, post-op because if you create too much of a flat foot, then it's going to be difficult to uh, for, that, for that patient to walk post-operatively. So the bowler's angle, if it is less than 20, you have a flat calcaneus and the angle of Gisson. If you have an increased angle, then you have a flat calcaneus as well. And This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. There's a, a classification based on uh, Roy Sanders um, out of uh, Florida. And uh, what is the Sanders classification uh, based on for calcaneus? Yeah, so this is going to be uh, based on like, so if you're looking at a CT scan, you're looking at the coronal oblique cuts and you're looking at the widest portion of the subtalar joint. And it's going to be based on uh, the number of, uh, of fracture fragments of the posterior facet. So again, to use a Sanders classification, you're going to be looking at the coronal oblique cut scans of the CT scan. So if you're on call and, you know, you know, you know, you have seniors that like to ask about classifications on 
you know, different consoles that you got, this may be one that you just try to quickly take a look at and take a look at the classification system just so you kind of know, uh, know what it is. And then also, you know, just know the type of fracture it is, whether it's kind of a joint depression or a tongue type. Um, and that's what the standards classification is based on. But what is the actual classification system itself? So this, this classification is really based on, I believe, the, um, the coronal CT scan is what I think Sanders was truly looking at. And uh, like you said, uh, the number of fracture lines determines the, the type. And obviously, just like any other classification, a lower type is a less severe fracture. So type one is a non-displaced fracture. So they have a fracture of the calcaneus, but on an x-ray, it really doesn't look that bad. Type two is the posterior facet is in two fragments. So the two and two go together. Type three is the posterior facet is in three fragments. Um, so three and three go together. And what it means is as you're looking at that coronal CT scan, the uh, there, there's one fracture line creating two fragments. And then for a type three, there's two fracture lines creating three separate fragments. Um, and then a type four is a comminuted sort of uh, posterior facet fracture. And they get further subdivided, but all of that is really not entirely important for test taking purposes. So as long as you know, really, as long as you know type two and three, whereas two is two fragments, three is three fragments, you'll be able to really answer any sort of classification question on ABOS or OITE. And then um, there's a kind of a subset of the classification that looks at degrees of shortening, widening, and lateral wall impingement, which focuses on the peroneal tendons that are also important, but those are more important for reconstruction purposes rather than classification purposes. So as long as you understand that with a more comminuted fracture of the calcaneus, the wider it is going to be. And the wider the calcaneus, the more peroneal tendon impingement you'll get. As long as you can bring in that lateral wall and recreate the calcaneus, then you're going to have a much better outcome. So um, what, what, I guess, uh, now that we've gone over the classification, what type of calcaneus fracture should undergo immediate operative reduction and fix fixation? Yeah, this is going to be that displaced tongue type fracture. Again, these are the extra articular fractures. And you'll notice these right away when you look at an x-ray and you look at a lateral of the calc or lateral of the of the foot. And you'll see that fragment that's displaced posteriorly. Again, just like you said um, a little earlier, you have the pull of the Achilles tendon. And that's something that you just don't splint and send them home. That's something you need to take them to the OR right now. And you need to try percutaneous to reduce it and, and pin it or, or put a screw in it or however you know, however you fix it. And the reason is because you have a high risk of posterior skin necrosis. So whenever you notice that x-ray, um, definitely go and see them and make sure you take a look at the skin, take a look at the posterior, um, you know, posterior skin right behind the calcaneus and notice any blanching or any ecchymoses, any bruising, or if, if there's anything that's going on, because that'll be one of the and if I see that on x-ray and one of my juniors is on and they call me with something, that's going to be one of the first things I ask, okay, is it open or closed? And then what's the skin like? Um, so definitely know that, you know, these displaced tongue type fractures, 
have a high risk of posterior skin necrosis and should not be sent home and should undergo operative reduction and fixation. Now, what, you know, calcaneus fractures in general uh, are indicated for non-op treatment or can be treated without any surgery? So one, obviously Sanders one, like I talked about before, those are the non-displaced types. So um, they might have uh, medial and lateral calcaneal bruising on physical exam and ankle swelling, but the x-rays don't look terrible. You get a CT scan, you see a non-displaced uh, fracture through the posterior facet. Um, those ones are uh, good for non-operative treatment. And then um, it, it kind of is dealer's choice for, for others, um, kind of based on uh, aggressiveness of the surgeon and other factors based on the patient. So if you have a, a 25 year old who was riding their motorcycle and has a Sanders two or three, you might be more inclined to fix that rather than a 65 year old, uh, smoker diabetic who fell off their ladder while taking down their Christmas lights. So it, it kind of is dealer's choice. I don't think they're going to get really into that on ABOS or OITE in terms of really deciding on operative versus non-operative treatment, but you really, you really can't go wrong with calcaneus fractures and, and choosing non-operative treatment um, because a, a vast majority of them are, except for the ones who uh, really have a depressed uh, articular surface in the subtalar joint or posterior facet. And so um, outside of that, uh, what, what sort of other calcaneus fractures are indicated for operative treatment? And kind of just like you're going off of, again, those type two or type three Sanders classifications, we have you know, two or three, uh, two or three fragments in the young patient, you might fix it. Um, so again, those can go either way. Some can be treated non-operatively, some can be treated operatively. If these were, are being treated operatively, you can treat them with open reduction, internal fixation. And the thing to know about calcaneus fractures is typically this is treated in, in somewhat of a delayed fashion. You wait for the soft tissues to heal a little bit. You wait for the swelling to go down and you want to get the so-called wrinkle sign where basically you just want the skin to be able to wrinkle uh, before you put an incision. Because again, we know these calcaneus fractures um, are high risk for wound issues. And for these Sanders four classifications, where it's just highly comminuted, the joint surface is highly comminuted, you can um, treat it with overreduction internal fixation, and you can also do a primary subtalar arthrodesis. So that's where you fuse the subtalar joint again. So if that posterior facet is highly comminuted, and again, the posterior facet right above that, you have the, the, the talus. So this is part of that subtalar joint which is why a primary subtalar arthrodesis, you know, may be indicated in these patients with these highly commuted um, cow fractures where their articular, where their articular surface comminution is, is typically pretty bad. Thank you all for listening to that episode. If you haven't already, please go and leave us a review. That would help out a bunch and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at nailed it ortho. All right, everybody until next time.